So there is a dream and a goal that we could have the run for gold again happen in Lake Placid, which would be just a phenomenal um, opportunity, but you'd have to do it right. And mm -hmm. I think that's what's really cool to me is that it requires an innovative thinker, in my mind, to be able to say, how do I do some great things that have we've seen gone not so well yeah. in a way that is sustainable, that's going to do it. And, and this framework is providing them a way to start thinking about all those things well ahead of putting even a bit in for the Olympics. And, and you know, if they get lead certified gold, which would be marvelous, mm. um, it'd be great to say, hey, or platinum, it would be great to say, hey, we did this and we're on the track to this and our, we're incorporating these sustainability initiatives into what we're going to do to make these games happen. Hello, everyone, and welcome. You're listening to the Clarkson Ignite podcast. We are coming to you from Batman's Cave. WTSC radio station. In the Clarkson Student Center. Hello, everyone. I'm Matt. And I'm Nick. This podcast is a weekly podcast meant to connect individuals across Clarkson's extremely diverse community and give you, our listeners, an interesting and unique contact experience. Our hope? is that you can walk away from our episodes learning something new and valuable, something that will inspire. This week, we talked to Professor Eric Backus. He is the Howard E. Lecture, Leckler? Leckler? Leckler. Yeah, that's kind of hard to read, but Leckler. Leckler, Endowed Director of the Construction Engineering Management Program. He serves as the co-chair for the Market Leadership Advisory Board for the Upstate New York Community of U.S. Green Building Council and is committed to the success of his students. Most of his research and teaching is in the design and construction of sustainable buildings. His focus on innovation and sustainable building was the majority of our conversation. It was a fun conversation. Uh, it was great to learn from one of the best, and we enjoyed it, and we hope you do as well. Listener mail. This week. What do we got, Nick? All right. This week, we have a question from Kate Wellings, a Clarkson sophomore. She asked us, what inanimate object would you delete from this universe? I'm going to rant, so you go first. Okay. I'm going to go off also. Okay. So um, one inanimate object I would delete is I would remove... Episode 7 of the Star Wars story from existence because of multiple reasons. They destroyed Luke Skywalker's character. They put in storyline parts that just meant nothing to anything. It had nothing to do with Star Wars at all. And then they had a bunch of characters that were meaningless and they destroyed everything. And I cried three times. Wow. I feel like you have a lot more anger about this that you're keeping in. I'm very angry. I'm very angry. <laughs> I, it's the least, oh, God. All right, well, before you, before you really let it go, um, my inanimate object or thing is social media. And I don't care even if it's not inanimate because it still needs to be eliminated. It's everything that's wrong with people and uh, instincts and hate and not thinking things through. What I hate most is that people just like automatically just let their primal instincts take hold. Mm -hmm. mm. A lot like, like what they did when they were making The Last Jedi, Star Wars. <laughs> 
they just got going and like, this is a good idea. That's a good idea. This is a good idea. We shouldn't think about any of these things and what it's going to do to people. We're just going to do it. And it wasn't because it destroyed me. Yeah. Yep. I just don't like it. I don't like it either. I agree with you. I could say that I'm going to blame social media on the way, the reason Star Wars was the way it was. And now I'm angry. Now I'm angry at social media. I'm beefing with social media now. I'm just saying. But it is a necessary demon no. that we must well i mean how else are you supposed to get information to people these days they no. don't do anything else i'm not gonna you read a book like a normal person but how are you going to get information to them in a book you write it in the book the main you reason, print the book but the and main then reason, you ship the book to them the main way that we get people information about the fact that this podcast exists is through social media it Dang is a it. necessary evil unfortunately i hate when you write i know because I have a company and I have to market on social media and I don't like it. Yeah. I don't like it one bit. Because mm. mm. I have to then make things far more superficial. Mm. I don't like it. I want it to be about the quality of the product rather than, oh my God, this looks so good. Well, you know, you know what? What? Maybe you shouldn't have made shirts out of trash. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and on that bombshell thank you it's recycled trash it is recycled it looks trash. really nice it looks good but it's okay it's still you know we're trying to save the environment people that's all yeah tearperil.com dot co <laughs> email us for next week <laughs> please edit that part out no okay tearperil.co until next time Professor Backus, thank you for joining us. Um, you know, getting to know you and work with you in a few facets this year has been um, really fun and exciting with Phalanx and with uh, Greenhouse Construction. Um, what you do for this campus, I think, is very valuable. And I wanted to bring you on and kind of highlight the variety of things that you do for the Clarkson community. Um, you've been dedicated for decades now with Clarkson, first as a student, um, and then coming back recently as a professor and, and all your facets with sustainability. Uh, I'd love to start with kind of how you got here in the first place. Uh, truth be told, Matt, it was a coin toss, as okay. scary as that might be. So uh, I was uh, looking at many different schools and um, uh, thought of going to a couple that, that, came, that were at the top of my list. One was Northeastern University, which is in Boston, and the other one was Clarkson. And uh, it wasn't exactly a coin toss. It's kind of euphemistic, but <laughs> reality was I had to pick between those two and uh, ended up choosing Clarkson. Um, I had been here. My first time visiting Clarkson was when uh, Camp and Shield were under construction. Oh wow! Um, and what happened? My mom happened to have a friend of hers who was go her her boyfriend was going to Clarkson at the time because my mom was an undergraduate student, a non traditional student at Oswego. Mm -hmm. And uh, said, you know, my son's interested in engineering. You know, Clarkson's great engineering school would be, you know, whatever. So we worked out, came up here. It was the middle of the winter. So I already knew that it was going to be really cold and miserable <laughs> up here. Um, and what was interesting is, you know, it's great school. A lot of great things going on. He was having to be a computer science major, so it was kind of, you know, not my thing. But it was a great place to come to and learn about. And, and my father's family is actually from up here. So Bacchus is, there's, you know, Bacchus is in Madrid and Augensburg and so forth in Lisbon um, and so I'm related distantly to those folks and I'm now the fifth generation owner of some land down in uh, Russell, New York so that's my family's been here for a long time on my father's side and so it, it in a lot of ways I was coming home um, had uh, uh, some friends that we knew from farms that were here so I yes I learned how to milk a cow when I was young uh, coming here <laughs> in the summers 
but then when it was time to go to school, it was great because I get the kids to ride home with some of them if they were heading towards Syracuse or uh, where my my family kind of mainly live was in Liverpool. Or, uh, you know, get home-cooked meals. So it's nothing like going to the farm and getting fresh beef that was, like, literally almost been slaughtered that week or whatever. Uh, so it was pretty cool. So that kind of thing was was great. So, uh, but, you know, with that came uh, a love of a lot of things Clarkson. Um, you know, was it green and gold? Uh, got was really active here. Did CUSA. I was an ROTC cadet, uh, Army side. I did uh, a lot of activities. Started a, a fraternity, Omega Lambda Tau. Uh, just celebrated our 25th anniversary on uh, Friday, which is kind of exciting. Congratulations! Oh, yeah, 25 years, and it's they're still going. Um, had 40 alumni here this weekend. It was that's awesome. Kept me busy, um, <laughs> and, and it, very diverse. Uh, it was great. So you know, a lot of great things here at Clarkson. Um, and, and I had this guy. You might have heard of him. His name's Tony Collins. Mm, yeah, he, he's a he's someone on campus. Yeah, someone on campus. Mm. You might have heard of him. Yeah, and he was my advisor. Uh, and and he there's a story he could tell you about my first day coming to his office and having my schedule have to get rearranged for lots of different <laughs> reasons. But uh, clearly was a mentor and guide while I was here, among, among many mentors and guides that were here. Um, and uh, just a great experience being at Clarkson. That's awesome. So you mentioned being a, a Army ROTC cadet. Um, so you transitioned into the Army and you spent quite a few years with them, correct? Yeah, so I uh, was selected for active duty. Um, this was in 97. Um, was co- you know, commissioned a second lieutenant here at Clarkson uh, May 17th. To be precise, I remember that date for lots of reasons. And 20 years later, actually more than 20 years later, 20 and a half years later, I retired um, from the Army. And it started off active duty, uh, did four years initially. Um, I thought I was getting off active duty in uh, uh, June of 2001. Well, as you know, in September of 2001, some things changed. Mm. Um, and uh, anyhow, so basically was very quickly back on active duty, ended up doing the invasion of Iraq uh, in 2003. Um, and did some great things over there, came back, finished my graduate school because I was doing graduate school, and I left the Army initially, I thought so. Uh, so I finished that, got my master's degree in, in Missouri, where I was stationed at Fort Leonard Wood, uh, eventually made my way back to D.C. and transitioned to the Army Reserve, which is a federal force, not the National Guard, which is a state force. Um, did some really interesting things on a, that side, but at the same time started building a civilian career in engineering, um, initially as, as a contractor uh, with a company called Centennial Contractors. I'd done some other contracting work in Missouri, actually, with another firm, too. But um, And then uh, had this great opportunity at this place called George Mason University, where I was t- brought on as a project manager um, to build uh, buildings and infrastructure for a very large university. So it's 36,000, a little bit larger than Clarkson. Slightly. Um, outside of Washington, D.C., with three campuses, one in Arlington, one in Fairfax, and one in Prince William counties. And... Uh, they had a very sizable uh, capital program. We built um, three and a half million square feet of new buildings in six years. Wow. At one point, we were literally putting $20 million worth of construction work in the ground a month. Not a year, a month. Um, that's just unbelievable. Uh, so housing for students, um, it was, I, I was doing mainly athletic recreation and venue type activities. So had a new rec center, new expansion to our aquatic center, did a child development center, did a bunch of fields and sporting things, um, lots of maintenance projects, infrastructure projects as well on the way. Um, and then 2007, um, the Army said it would need to have a surge, and I was a surgee. Um, and that's not surgee's pizza, I mean, surge. Um, and so I was off to uh, go back to Iraq for my second tour. In this case, I was uh, signed. Uh, my unit was attached to the 20th Engineer Brigade out of Fort Bragg. 
So went down North Carolina for a little while, got prepped up, went with those guys, and was stationed kind of all over in Iraq because my role was I was a chief of design for the brigade, which the brigade was responsible for all the engineering that went on throughout Iraq uh, and oversaw all the kind of that higher echelon general engineering. So when it came to any design work that military forces needed done, I was responsible for it. So I had um, Army folks that worked for me. I had several uh, what they called bicultural bilingual advisors. We were expatriate Iraqi citizens who had left the country or fled the country for lots of different reasons you can imagine mm-hmm. um, and had been educated elsewhere, but they were willing to come back and work in the country. Uh, I had other contractors that would work with us as well. But I oversaw all the design stuff, and right next to me was my construction management guy. So Derek Edmond, uh, Major Edmond, and, Major, and I was Major Backus at the time. We were like an inseparable couple almost. Um, I was designing it. He was building it. A lot of times I would pick up things for him or he would pick up things for me because of the way we had our skill sets. But basically anything, I was from all the way up north in Talafar Air Base down to, you know, out, out al-Assad. We did some stuff their base there out in the west. Uh, where eventually ISIS came into me, um, all the way down to Basra, which is right next to the uh, border with Kuwait, um, and everything in between. Lots of stuff in Baghdad, of course, uh, Diyala Valley. So lots of parts of it. So I got to go all over the country, do a lot of things, uh, some pretty cool projects and pretty exciting things and kept you really busy. Came yeah, back. Can, go ahead. I can only imagine it's, it's got to be extremely dynamic, because I'm sure your deadlines are like immediate for construction projects like that. How do you kind of manage the the design constraints of making sure that you build it well, but doing it quickly enough to, to match the timelines? Well, you know, one of the things, is a, it's a risk management exercise, largely. Um, so you have to figure out, okay, what do you need to do to make it so it's good enough and nobody gets hurt on the back end? So there's a lot of times where what we like to optimize here in the United States for lessening materials or, or making it so that there's uh, some assumptions or, or some things done based upon ways we can reduce the amounts of labor materials required, we would just not do that. We would just say, hey, look, we got to be conser- very conservative and do things uh, in a way that make them last a really long time or last in the face of things like IEDs. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly that's a different set of sets of uh, things you got to think through and different kind of optimization you're used to. Yeah. Your factor of safety is in those are probably huge. It can be. Um, you know, the, the, the num- numerical value is almost meaningless sometimes. It mm-hmm. can be like 10 times factor of safeties. Um, but the it's more what is your design premise um you know most buildings here worry about certain things about the environment and or occupation by human beings or materials we put in them there your the, your biggest one is what's going to try to blow it apart and yeah. that's different completely than uh some other things so yeah t- that are tight i mean for instance i had a situation it was late in uh, july of 2007 when we got there early august and uh they blew up a bridge uh, in the middle of the t- country. So imagine, if you will, the bridge between, you know, uh, Watertown and Syracuse, one of those major bridges blows up. And it basically means you can't move any goods north of a certain location. So it's north of Baghdad. Um, I was uh, called to the Joint Operations Center where there was a live feed of the, of the satellite looking at this location. I was told there was a helicopter waiting for me and eight guys going to guard me while I figured out what to do. And I had to have a design and preparation for figuring out how to fix that in 48 hours. <laughs> so, yes, it can be tight. It can be fast. Um, and we do it. That's what you have to do. So you have yeah. to use that engineering judgment, use the science of things that you learn in places like Clarkson and uh, make it happen. Mm. So after your few tours and your, your work at George Mason, you came back. Oh, yeah. It's crazy. And <laughs> How did that work? Uh, so I was at uh, one point where I was uh, looking to uh, make a career transition, um, and uh, and I just had reached out to the department. Uh, Stefan Grimberg was the department chair, and I said, hey, you know, 
I knew this guy named Spencer Thue. If you don't know who Professor Thue is, Professor Thue's been here since 1958, I think. Wow. He's over 50 years teaching here, so it's amazing. As it was an adjunct, um, running his own company and taught courses here. That's awesome. And so, yeah, and I knew he was not getting any younger. Um, <laughs> and and I said, hey, if there's any time that Spencer's thinking about making a transition uh, to, to leave, you know, I love to come back home. Um, I, you know, time of living in D.C. is great, a lot of great fun stuff, but if you, you want to see traffic, yeah, he there's goes. some traffic. Um, I said, hey, you want to do, and again, close family home here and things like that. I said, you know, I'd be interested in it. You know, just let me know. I, I may not work at my point in life, but whatever. Didn't work at that time, but Stefan had remembered, and he uh, reached out to me because they had done a national search looking for someone and <clears throat> had not been successful in finding the right person. I said, you know, are you, you told me to reach out to you. Well, are you interested? And, and it took me a little bit. I wasn't really ready for that. I was very happy with doing it at George Mason. I was a university what they called engineering planner, which is like the university engineer here at Clarkson, mm-hmm. and was looking looking to get promoted to an you know associate vice president or associate director type of role. Really wasn't looking to move, but you know again this guy Tony Collins he can be very <laughs> convincing, as well as people like Michelle Crimi who was a good friend of mine. We actually went to school together here at the same time, and so a little arm twisting and and frankly my wife's uh, my wife is in consulting environmental consulting and and just thought about where life was at and where we wanted to do and the idea of coming back to your alma mater to, to do this just was really alluring um it's a phenomenal place you guys have no idea students how great it is uh, you will appreciate it every day you leave here because you're going to want to go back every single day you can and so having that opportunity and privilege was just uh out of this world so yep after a little while got me convinced um and i came back in the fall of 2014 and ever since you've been involved heavily with sustainability um and you know, I want to talk about a few different things. I know you're associated with the Institute for Sustainable Environment. Um, you teach a variety of courses related to sustainability and life cycle thinking. And, um, but mainly your work with educating students on the U.S. Green Building Council being LEED certified um, and specifically your work in Lake Placid on that project. I want you to kind of talk to me a little bit about how you got involved with the LEED um, construction, I don't want to say ideology, but <laughs> basically the... The green building movement, let's yeah, say that. How green, green building movement. Green building that? movement and, um, you know, everything associated with it. Yeah, so um, truth be told, a lot of it started here. Uh, not just Clarkson, but just being in the northern world. Again, I grew up in the summers here as a boy. My family property, which I'm proud to be, you know, kind of the co-owner of right now with my brother. Um, you know, we have 100 acres of woods down there in Russell that we just love. It's just a great place there's you you can't but sometimes get amazed about the wonder of creation itself and how that's around you certainly my, my spiritual background has some parts of that too um, Lutheran Christian and certainly that has an inf- informing aspect to me but um, the green building movement specifically came about is uh, when I was at Centennial as a contractor had an opportunity to uh, green building had just gotten started in the in the 1990s late 90s and early 2000s as a concept um, and and then you know Rick Fergizzi who happened from actually from Syracuse area, by the way, um, had started this. And I was working on Centennial and said, hey, we'll send you some trading on this thing called LEED. And I said, that's pretty cool. And I heard about LEED prior to that um, from being a construction student at uh, in my graduate studies. So I was aware of what it was. And I said, this is great. Let me, I hadn't really gotten deep into it, but I was interested in it. And so I said, sure, let's, let's give it a whirl. Went to some trading, and I was hooked. The whole idea of thinking about how do we make our buildings um, – more sustainable and by sustainable you know what type of materials we're putting in them what's the quality of the environment that people live in in these buildings 
what is the nature of the energy we're using and how we can minimize that. Because so much of our energy is driven from fossil fuels and how that's definitely having a detrimental effect on our climate. Um, and all the different, the whole gambit, thinking about uh, everything from, you know, how do you restore habitat as part of that. And so I really got into it. It was near, it, it just, it was clearly close to me personally, um, but it also just professionally was perfect because here's a way I could take kind of some of the things in my, my, about my being, about who I was and express them in my professional work in a meaningful way and have great impact in the world. So going to George Mason, I was part of a group that got them to establish a lead standard for campus. I developed their environmental sustainment standards for building construction and infrastructure construction there. I was able to be on I, mean, I was actually given the one year a Sustainable as a Hero Award for some of the work I had done there. And helping students, even there when I was in a more facilities administrative role, teach them, guide them about ways to do things better. Just, it was thrilling. It's just, it's a great way to know that you can have a positive impact and to me, coming here now as a faculty member, a professor, being able to share that passion with others, engaging them in what can be a lifelong journey that's only evolving and growing in positive ways, that they know they can make a positive impact on the world, just is thrilling. Um, and yeah, I, I am part of the, the project down at, in the North, uh, New York Olympic region, or Lake Placid, um, where we're doing, and, and it's now in for uh, review, hopefully we'll get our rating back soon, the first multi-jurisdictional lead community in the world will be in Lake Placid, New York. Um, and that was a lot of great work on the part of the local residents. Um, some students in our Adirondack semester, you might have heard of that, another great opportunity that Clarkson's unique for and has a great opportunity for. And, and some of my colleagues, faculty like Steve Bird, um, Sue Powers, uh, Joe Scuffgums, Martin Heitzelman, uh, Santosh Mendutin, um, and so on, that just really um, were able to come together around these things and bring, and also some folks I met from George Mason, like uh, Steve Baumgartner from a company called Smith Group, so a consulting group, just bringing these people together to do something right here in our backyard in a place that's an iconic place where the Miracle on Ice happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd like to win another gold if I can here. <laughs> <laughs> so talk about the challenges with that, because, you know, you're talking about an entire community slash region almost um, that was built largely, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago at this point. What was what was that like trying to cuz I'm sure there's some significant conversions that had to go go on with that, right? Yeah, so f- first thing you got to understand the context of place. So one of the things I really like about the Adirondack semester if you haven't taken that opportunity here at Clarkson is they have this class called sense of place and they learn about the place. But in learning about the place, you also start to figure out, so what about that place is going to change? Everything always changes. The question is, are those changes going to lead to outcomes that are going to improve quality of life, improve um, human human outcomes, but also ecological outcomes that are positive, but also other kind of outcomes that might be meaningful? So, yeah, it did have to you know start revealing things. So in the process we've gone through so far, it's really been the discovery phase. We have not... We, you know, we're, we're, the certification is saying, hey, have you analyzed, have you understood, and do you have a plan going forward? And so this has really given us an opportunity to talk to the community about where do you want to go. And by bringing four different groups together, so it's a village of Lake Placid, yes. There's also the town of North Elba that surrounds it, the Olympic Regional Development Authority, which is a New York State authority that runs all the things like Whiteface and the Olympic Center and so on. And then the school district. So you were talking about high school students, trying to get them all to work together around a joint set of goals and objectives that they can work on together and also honoring and respecting the things they want to do as groups individual to themselves was a unique challenge for them. But it also did require them to think differently. 
they hadn't thought about, for instance, you know, um, how can we look at improving downtown traffic in Lake Placid by thinking about how they operate different facilities for ORTA outside of that? Are there ways to do that? One of the biggest challenges in the Adirondacks right now is that it's become a, it's obviously world famous as a, one of the most protected parks in the world that's occupied by significant amounts of humans. How do we protect it from being damaged from an influx of people who really want to go hiking? You know, the whole movement for outdoor sports and activities has really grown, which yeah. is phenomenal and great. But the invasive species issues and all that. There's has invasive become... species get brought in. Yeah. There's the trampling that occurs on trails. There's mm-hmm. additional refuse and waste that some people aren't very good about maintaining their uh, outdoor stewardship. So we need so education. So how do we do these things? But at the same time, we like these things because that brings economic vitality brings revenues in. But by the way, is that getting shared with everybody equally in the community? How do we start talking about that or equitably? Maybe not equally, but equitably in the community. And um, so it's it really reframed a lot of questions. Luckily, again, I would say the leadership in the community was very inva- invested in wanting to make that, make that have that thinking, have a conversation about it, and see where it went. And so we're really in the first parts of it. But I'm excited to say that, that you know, whether it be Craig Randall, who's the mayor of the town, uh, Jay Rand, who's a councilman on the town council, or all the other leaders, they really are invested in trying to figure out this answer for the future. And that's that's exciting to me, and because they've bought into this whole green building movement um, in lots of different ways. So that's, it's been exciting just to be an able, enabler for them and a person to help them through their process. So is this um, initiative built into their downtown revitalization project grant that they were given to by the state? So Saranac Lake got that, not Lake Placid, okay, got just it, got so it. you know, uh, the DRI initiative from the state. But they do have a downtown Main Street program that they're investing in, So okay. that, and it is exactly wired. As a matter of fact, one of the conversations we'll be having tomorrow is with their, uh, the planning commission um, uh, director about how they better think through their downtown revitalization in conjunction with another another uh, initiative they're working on in, in the community. But yes, that, that would it'd be. this is all tied to their next DRI-esque um, got it, to do that because they want to be able to show for them, it, you know, they saw things like what happened with the Sochi games, for instance, or the real mm-hmm. games. And if they're thinking about their community as an Olympic community, uh, which they are, how can they show that they're not like those places where yeah. when they get done with the Olympics, things go dark or they, you know, really have a hard time economically or they, are they degradate their environment around? They don't want, they want to do the opposite. So they want to have a plan that allows them to become grow and be vital and have all those benefits without losing the ecological beauty and, and the, the benefits they get from the environment around them in a meaningful way. So Yeah, because that's been a huge issue, at least um, from the public-facing view of the Olympics in the last 10 years, is the extreme waste and just obscene amount of destruction that goes on in trying to put on the games. So I think that you know, for Lake Placid to keep improving upon their site instead of just letting it die out, you know, who knows? Maybe it might even be easy to, easier to have another Olympic Games there in the future. There's a hope of that. So, for if you don't know, Clarkson University is partnering with the region on the upcoming University Games. So, there is a college University Games coming up um, in, in a few years, and we're going to be doing some of the regional events here, and then the final games will be done there in Lake Placid. But that's a small version of another Olympic Games. There is a dream and a goal that we could have the run for gold again happen in Lake Placid, which would be just a phenomenal um, opportunity. But you'd have to do it right. And mm-hmm. I think that's what's really cool to me is that it requires an innovative thinker, in my mind, to be able to say, how do I do some great things that have we've seen gone not so well yeah. in a way that is sustainable, that's going to do it? And, and this framework is providing them a way to start thinking about all those things well ahead of putting even a bit in 
for the Olympics. And, and you know, if they get lead certified gold, which would be marvelous, mm. um, it'd be great to say, hey, or platinum, it would be great to say, hey, we did this and we're on the track to this and our, we're incorporating these sustainability initiatives into what we're going to do to make these games happen. So it's not an afterthought. It's not something on the end. This is the core values of what we're about. And I think that will speak greatly for what they want to do. But I think also, if they were given a bid by the Olympic Committee and International Olympic Committee, it would also say a lot about them, that they've changed significantly and they really start valuing some things that are really important. Uh, and they can be leaders. Uh, you know, that's, they say they're a movement. Well, I think uh, the green building movement and that movement could really get well to get long, well, really well together. Mm. So just for the people that don't know, why don't you walk through the, the tiers of um, lead certification for buildings specifically? Yeah, so for instance, so there are, uh, so buildings get rated on a 100-point scale or 110-point scale for the building system. Um, if you get 40 points, so it's, a, it's different types of credits you can look at. Some are their value differently. For instance, uh, Energy and Atmosphere has a credit called uh, Optimized Energy Performance. You can get up to 18 points for that one credit. Um, on the other hand, you can get a single point for things like construction, demolition, waste uh, management during a construction project. So there's a variety of scaling for each of the different credits. If you accumulate, po and you accumulate points through these credits, if you get 40, you get certified. So that's the base level of, of, of certification in the, in the rating system. The next is silver, and that's at, at, at 50. Um, and then uh, gold is at 60, and then 80 uh, will get you to platinum. So it's, it scales up. 80 or more, you're, you're obviously in the top echelon of what that is. And so you're really gone very aggressively. Um, for many years, people said it was cost a lot to go green. Mm. Um, it costs green to go green, as they would say. It's kind of a, a double crescendo there or something. Um, but really what we found is uh, lead silver, lead gold, somewhere in, there, in the middle of those two is a break. It's pretty much break even because by making the energy savings, by doing some things to not waste on the job to begin with, you end up saving just as much energy, much money as you would have spent out for that. So while there is a cost to do through the process um, and, and there's a cost of certification, there's value brought to it. Now, others will still try to do the process without going through the certification. And that's acceptable, of course. But um, the idea of having a third party say, yep, you've actually done it right, I think has significant meaning. Um, and it's important. Uh, you know, Clarkson has a goal of having all its buildings done to lead silver at a minimum. They won't necessarily get certification for all of them, but they will try to do that. And one of the things I do in my class, and we'll talk about my class, uh, we always look at some of the projects going here at Clarkson and see, are they really attaining that lead silver? In some cases they are, in some cases they aren't, um, but they are definitely focused on trying to do something similar to that, even if they aren't doing the exact lead silver requirements. So we'll talk more about that. What are the what are the easiest, like what's the low-hanging fruit when it comes to improving sustainability and use of resources when thinking about a construction project? What do you try and help your students look at first as, okay, we don't necessarily have, like this is what we're going through with the greenhouse project right now. We don't have a giant budget. We can't buy the fanciest equipment. Most of it is trying to reuse materials, which is part of that sustainability goal. But how do we, what, what are the things that you tell students to look at first? First off, if you pick all the low-hanging fruit off a tree, the tree doesn't survive very well. <laughs> um, you need to pick off fruit from all parts of the tree so that it can grow healthier. And so the first part I always tell students about any of these kind of ratings, whether it be lead or green globes or bream, there's a number of these. These are not, you know, Lead is just probably the leading one people know about. It's got its name, leading, kind of uh, yeah. honey, funny. Um, but there are lots of these. And, and I think the first thing is recognize it's a menu. And by a menu, I mean, you know, when you go to a restaurant and you get presented a menu, you don't order one of every, every single item on the menu. Because mm -hmm. if you did, then you wouldn't be able to fill it in your belly and you'd be, taking a, be wasting a lot, right? 
on the other hand, you also don't pick stuff that doesn't fit right, right? You figure out the thing off the menu that you want to eat that evening that is striking in the right way, that meets the context. You know, you know, I got a great basketball game tomorrow. I need, need to carb up. Maybe I'm going to have the pasta dish for dinner tonight, right? But on the other hand, I need a little bit of protein because I'm going to be training for that, you know, that Ironman three weeks from now. I better get some protein so I can get some that lean protein in my body. So maybe I got to get a chicken dish tonight, right? Um, depends upon what you're trying if you're vegan or not and all those kind of good things. But the point is you're picking off a menu. So the first thing you need to do, the low-hanging fruit, if you will, not to use that phrase too <laughs> flippantly because I just told you that's not the way you do it, is first figure out what are the things that make sense contextually for you? What are the things you're trying to go? So what are your goals, goals. and objectives to get done? And then look at, okay, what are tools like LEAD that can you, you can take those goals and apply them to to help guide you further about what are the techniques and methods and so on that can actually enable you to go forward? But don't get so tied to the system that you forget the context. Yeah. And that's what, you know, frankly, sometimes happens with buildings um, too often is that you start chasing the points mm-hmm. instead of going back to what are the goals and objectives. And if at some point it doesn't make sense to get certified at all, that's fine yeah. if you've got clear goals and objectives and you're honoring the intention of sustainability that you're going into it for. And yeah. so I think that's a part of it. So like, for instance, the greenhouse project you're talking mm-hmm. about, we have an existing greenhouse here on campus that you're working on, Matt, and it, you know, it's got certain benefits and certain liabilities. So what is right to salvage or not? And I think the process you're going through right now is that very iterative process of what are our goals and objectives? Okay, what can we get out of it? Now we've figured out what we got. How does that work? Doesn't work? Go back to those goals and objectives. So let's ferret out, use some criteria, decide it, and then go to the next step. And it sometimes takes a couple iterations before you get to the place you want to be. And I think that speaks um, you know, to the importance of the discovery phase a lot. And so I tried yep. leading a uh, discovery workshop for the President's Challenge. Unfortunately, not that many people came, but, you know, it allowed me to kind of search for the importance in that. And, you know, a lot of times if you forget that problem statement, that that one thing that you're designing this thing for in the first place, then, yeah, that makes sense that you're really going to just try and chase points. And then you're what you're going to end up with is not anything resolving the problem that you set out to build that building for in the first place. Right. So we, one of the things I would do in the projects when I was uh, doing projects at George Mason or elsewhere, some of the other pro- companies I work for, well, we would always have a specific time after kind of each phase of design. So we typically would go through it in buildings, you have a schematic, preliminary, or, or design development, however you want to call it, and then you have a final design phase. And what I would always do before we, we as we're ready to kind of pull the design together, we would have a charrette time where we say, okay, what were our goals and objectives? How are we doing on them? We call it the lead seminar, the sustainability seminar. But basically, what are we doing? And are we reflecting that? So that you're checking back on learning and helping you make sure you're guiding the way forward. And, and it takes some, there's always going to be a rub. There's nothing that's ever going to work perfectly together. So mm-hmm. it takes an innovative thinker to think through, how do I get around or get through or build the right solutions that that enable us to do all the things we want to do to the best of our ability, knowing we're not going to get them all done, but at least we're taking a good stab at getting the best solution we can for this situation. Yeah, and one of the things that I found when I was making that slide deck for the discovery workshop is, you know, having that problem statement with you at all the meetings where you have the difficult conversations about design decisions and all that is crucial to making sure that you're going to make that right decision because, you know, ultimately when you make that decision, if you don't have the problem in mind that, you know, it's useless. And it also encourages you to think about what are the things that are not present. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, for instance, you know, one of the things I strive for is diversity in lots of different ways. And I think one of the things I recognize is that 
when you've gotten to the point where you're having those tough conversations and you, and you sense that there's just you're, you're in, there's an immovable part of this, that's when you get a diverse voice in the room to help you think about it because they would often see it in a new way, bring new insights. And so back to that discovery phase, are you having the right folks discovering with you? Mm-hmm. And if Stakeholders, you can, users, all that stuff. Whatever. And, and it... And and knowing you can't you know you can't let the person who's just parochially going to be the stick in the mud drive everything, but you you definitely hear there's a critique maybe there that you can learn from or there's something that goes on that helps you so you don't let them necessarily drive the conversation 100 percent but there's definitely something they bring to the table. Do that and that will expand your horizons again give you something and you may put together two or three things that you never thought went together and that becomes the winning solution. All right so kind of my last question um what do you what are you most excited about with what's going on here at Clarkson at the moment and what what kind of gives you what makes you excited to to come here and work here every day well I, I students like you Matt um oh, you. and the other students that are around us here in the studio today I to me the most exciting thing that I have every single day uh, to do is come in and work with some of the best students anywhere um, and I don't say that because, you know, I'm trying to puff egos or <laughs> whatever. It's just the, the, you know, the Clarkson values we have here, uh, caring, for instance, teamwork, diversity, all these values that, um, that frankly, you know, were thankfully kind of annotated finally when I was here. They had existed prior to that, but they annotated when I was a student here. Live on in you guys. And by that, I mean, you work hard. I, I, you know, I, I could go to certainly Harvard or MIT or Berkeley or Stanford or wherever and see brilliant students. But what I see that's different about the Clarkson students is, yeah, it's damn cold outside, so we always <laughs> stay inside and do stuff, right? And you work hard. Now, each student's a little bit different, and there's people of different abilities, and some people work harder than others. Let's be candid about that. Uh, so as I've got students that don't necessarily do that great and do their own things. But by and large, the type of makeup of a Clarkson student is somebody who just gets it done. And to be in a room with people that are optimistic and driven to do great things is just thrilling. It keeps me young, right? Um, on the other side of it, it's being able to give back. I mean, I love the fact that, you know, I have experiences that are not, I didn't go to graduate school and, and, and just go right into teaching and a professor. I have all these experiences from different places, literally in the world, literally in terms of context and, and, and roles that I've had. Being able to, to share that with students uh, in a meaningful way is, is just really cool. And, and I had dreamed at some point, maybe, I do that, but being able to do it now, um, kind of in the middle of my career, and kind of exciting part of my career, um, at an institution like Clarkson, which is small enough that I can get to know students really well on an individual level, but large enough to have amazing experiences you can get nowhere. I mean, where else has an Adirondack semester? Nobody, yeah. right? Who sends students into business school to overseas, no matter what, every year? Nobody, right? Who's ensuring that there's a whole series of ways you can be makerspace, um, there's speed teams, uh, the Ignite series that you're doing, Matt, um, these just opportunities that just blow the world away. You can't do that at a place that's 36,000. Trust me, George Mason tries that, and they, yeah. they, they're they wonderful folks. They can't do what they do here at Clarkson because it's just we're, we're special. Mm-hmm. Um, and having alumni, i got to go back to that, alumni who are like me, who I came back physically, but come back every year in terms of what they give financial giving, it just, they really support it. So that kind of atmosphere, it's a, it's a really big family in that sense. Um, at a small place, and I think we're glad to have that family. And so a lot of that's what makes me go to work every day. Um, again, I, I get to wear a green, you know, green and gold jersey on Fridays when the guys or gals are playing. 
Uh, I get to watch a women's team win three ti- three national champions. You can't beat this. I mean, this is just unbelievable. So uh, it's thrilling to be here. I'm glad to do it, and I'm um, glad to give back any way I can. Awesome. I think that's a great place to stop. All right. Well, thanks, Matt. Thank you, Professor. All right, everyone, that is all we have this week. Thank you again for tuning in to the Clarkson Ignite podcast. As always, I'm Matt. And I am Nick. Listen to you guys next week.